so many businesses struggle to find the right words to message their sustainable or social impact products and services. Actually, even if they're not sustainable, they struggle to that. They use too much jargon. That happens a lot in sustainability. They confuse their customers. And what happens at the end of the day is that they have little or no impact. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. You can join our online community right now, where we're going further, faster together at community.evolvecpg.com. Join us. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. Since the day we launched, we've been lucky enough to book some amazing guests on our show. Now, as we inch closer to 100 episodes, we thought we'd take a moment to replay some of our top hits from 2021 to remind you all to dig back in the archives from time to time because there's a lot of wisdom just waiting for you to tune in. On today's episode, we're speaking with Carolyn Pars. CEO of Mind Over Markets, about the green consumer and the best ways to talk about sustainability. Hi, I am Carolyn Pars, and I'm the CEO of Mind Over Markets. And for nearly 20 years, we have helped market sustainable and social impact businesses to help them clarify their message so they are seen, heard, and grow their businesses. Well, thank you for joining me. I'm super excited to chat with you. I've been following a lot of what you've been doing for a little while. You know, we shared a city for a bit, and I know that we've shared a passion for sustainability for a lot longer. So I'm curious. I always loved knowing where some of those seeds got planted. Where does your sustainability passion or focus come from? You know, that's a great question. I think I was born with it. When I say that, I remember when in my 20s that I I started thinking about why am I here? (laughs) What's the purpose of this lifetime? And I always was connected to earth and the nature. And I knew it had something to do with that. And I had a childhood where I lived on Long Island, New York, and we were around the water and we did a lot of things outdoors. And so the outdoors and nature and meaningful life purpose have been living in me since I was a, you know, a young adult. And it was a natural progression when I, my talents as a doing marketing, I was a copywriter, right? I started as a copywriter on, on Madison Avenue when I got out of school, but I worked for a lot of big brands. And, and even though, you know, it was exciting, we were doing television and print and all sorts of things. I was feeling like I wasn't connected, right, to the companies I was working for. I mean, we were selling some cool stuff, but I really wanted to feel good about the products and services that I was pouring my heart out and trying to help market. So that's that combination of my business and my own inner personal values came together. But as a kid, I was just, you know, I was just outdoors all the time and reading a lot about the planet and about Earth Day. And it was all so exciting to me. And I, so I really think it was like a seed that was planted in me before I showed up because it just like, it just always was, right? It wasn't like I had this defining moment where something happened and then I saw the light. 
I just felt like I was always in the light. <laughs> yeah, does that cool. make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. Do you feel like your parents nurtured that much, or was it kind of odd to them? I don't know if you were kind of going off on that path. They're like, "Oh, that's interesting," or were they like, "This is great. Let's let's nurture this and help you develop that interest." No, my I mean, my father was an outdoors guy, and my mom, but they neither of them were like the environmental. I mean, they loved the outdoors, but there wasn't that. It was, you know, I mean, I grew up with Twinkies, right? So <laughs> it wasn't like you know, Twinkies, Double Dogs, and you know, Riceroni <laughs> was the food. So, and I remember this is the thing. I wouldn't eat my vegetables. And the only thing I would eat were raw carrots. I couldn't eat that frozen stuff. So I was just like, that's another thing. I was just like a vegetable girl from the beginning. My parents tried to, you know, when they make steak, I'd be like, oh God, I can't eat this stuff. So, you know, it just was in my DNA. Totally. Sounds like there's a couple overlaps there. I was also very vegetables, like not very much meat growing up. And I just... Loved fresh veggies all the time, learned to like cook them or just eat them raw or whatever. That, And as an adult, I've kind of converted a lot of people who are hardcore meat eaters into actually loving vegetables too. Because I imagine, I think it's just about knowing how to eat them or how to prepare them that uh, a lot of people avoid it because they don't know that. Yeah. What, so my father, you know, this was like in the 70s and 80s, just so you know, right? My father had, at, we had at our dinner table he made it a homemade salad bar, right? This is before there were salad bars. And so we would have the lettuce and the tomatoes and we'd get up and fill our plates. So after a while, we had raw vegetables all the time because that was like what we were eating. And we had a garden outside too, right? So but I want to just make a little caveat, no judgment if you're eating meat, right? I know sometimes there's hardcore, there's no judgment. I just didn't have a propensity, didn't like it, Right. So we all have to do things in modification. If we can do it, at, you know, sustainably and responsibly, then everyone should make their choices for their life. And I know, I know animal is the hardest on, you know, it's the hardest, right? There's methane that comes out of the poop from, you know, the cows to the footprint that it has on the planet. So we, we want to go more plant-based if we can, for sure. So, but I, I don't, I just didn't want to make any of your, listeners think that I was like anti this and anti that. I believe we need everybody right now on the planet to shift and turn the boat that we're on for climate change and other things. So, Well, yeah, I think that most of the research shows that the American diet is a little unbalanced and we need more plants in the diet. So whether you're going all plants or just more plants, I think plants are an important part of the diet. And, you know, maybe the Atkins people might disagree, but, <laughs> but, but most of the world agrees. Yeah. That's cool. So you've been kind of a bit of a earthy, healthy kind of person your whole life. But I also know that one of the things you're an expert in is the green consumer. So can you talk a little bit about kind of where your knowledge around green consumers started and how that's evolved over the years? When I decided that I wanted to leave Madison Avenue and work for and try to work for brands that I believed in, right, I did some research, right? It was just when renewable energy and solar panels were were beginning to get some traction. This was like in early 2003, around 2003. So I started researching that and I took a look at the green consumer and what motivated them to buy. And I learned that if you have a pie chart, right, 
19% of the population is what we call deep greens, okay? Deep greens are, you know, they're in the game no matter what. They buy with their values. They're buying seven generation. They're buying Patagonia because they believe in the companies. They believe that those companies are doing good for the planet and they will pay more, right? They'll pay a premium because it's who they are in their gut. Then there's the next group, which is about 33%, which we call the medium greens. And they will buy green or sustainability products around that, but it has to make sense. It has to economically work. And it also has to efficacies. I say I could say spell green with three E's, right? It has to be ecological, efficacy, and economy. All three of those things have to come together. And if it makes sense, they will purchase. Okay. So the, so they're really the biggest piece of the pie. And I always say, aim your marketing there because you got the deep greens already. And then the medium greens are the ones that really, you really have to build a case. Then there are the light greens, and that's like 16% of the population. And I always call them the, like the, the Walmart shopper that all of a sudden Walmart brings in organics, right, into their store. You know, by the way, Walmart is the, the number one seller of organic milk, okay? So when they did that, they started moving the ball, right, a little bit towards organics. But that buyer would be looking at, obviously, price. It's got to be the same price. And then it's got to have a benefit beyond the environment. So the environment is not necessarily why they buy, but, it, but other attributes. So let me give you an example. My friend, Anda, our kids grew up together. So she would kind of roll her eyes when I would bring little goodie bags that were healthy granola things with my son. And then one day she calls me up and she said, Carolyn, I was at Walmart and I saw the organic milk and I bought it. And I'm like, you did? What made you do that? And she said, well, the expiration date was longer than the conventional milk. I guess that's one way. And I said, way to go on that. You know, that was it. It wasn't that it had no hormones. It wasn't the pesticides. It just had, it stayed longer in the refrigerator. So that's like the light green. And then there's the rest are like the no, what I just say, the no greens. And it, it, usually there's a political thing. They're like, we're never going to do that. And we know that, that whole <laughs> grouping. So I don't like, don't even bother, right? Because, they, you know, they're not interested and they never will be. You're not going to convince them. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if the percentages line up, but are, are you familiar with, it's been called so many different things. I first heard of it as the tech adoption curve, but they talk about the, uh, I forget the very first stage, but then there's the early adopters and then the early majority and then the late majority. It's kind of a similar philosophy that you get these two super hardcore, like people are willing to try new things, people who are passionate about whatever that is that you're doing. That's the early majority. And they're going to, kind of wave your flag for you. But the goal is to get them to wave the flag enough and to champion your brand to get you jumped across the chasm between the early adopters and the early majority. But once you get to that early majority, then you're more likely to have some sustainability with your brand, your movement, your mission, whatever, because now you've got more of the majority involved. And then the late majority is harder to get. And then I think the final stage is the laggards. And those are the people that are like, I'm never going to do it. <laughs> you know, at least they say that for the 20 years and then maybe convert later. 
the shades of green. Unless maybe unless climate change gets bad enough in their background, their backyard, and then maybe there's going to yeah, be some changes. Exactly. So yeah, I think it's uh, the shades of green almost align with that. One question I would ask too is another demographic people talk about a lot is the lojas lifestyles of healthy and sustainable that consumer. Where on the green chart do you see them? Are they more of the light green, the medium green, the dark green, or are they kind of a range? The lojas would be between the dark and the medium green. They're conscious buyers. There's a Lojas conference, right? There have or there were Lojas conferences in the past that I've been to, and I've actually recorded there. I did some podcasting there way back. But that grouping is definitely a mixture between that deep green consumer and the medium green where, you know, and that's a great space to be in. Okay. But here's the thing. I just want to say this for the, from a messaging standpoint, even though we're saying that we're talking about the green consumer still, when you market to them or you want to market to them, you still have to do your homework on what's important to that customer. You might not lead with the green message. And many times that's the mistake. That happens a lot of times. They'll come out with this, even a feel good, save the planet message. And that is what not is what's going to motivate them. It might be a tipping point. It might be what brings them to a competitive advantage between two brands or two different products. But you really need to, whoever you're targeting, dig deep into it. It could be a health situation, right? It could be, like I say, an economic one but not necessarily a green message. You and you would weave it in, but you don't lead with it. Yeah, and that's kind of part of why I brought up the Lojas because healthy is a big part of that too, right? They're not just doing it to be altruistic and save the planet, but that is maybe one of their motivations. But they're doing it because they've found out for whatever reason that there are health attributes to be had in doing more sustainable or, or healthier or more organic or whatever kind of things. It seems that that is a somewhat common point for people to enter into the more sustainable realm, um, especially I think around childbirth times when people are not just concerned about themselves, but also concerned about this other life they have to take care of. I think all of a sudden health becomes this much more important sometimes than price or much more important than convenience. And they start doing a lot more research and there are those kind of like life moments like that that put people on a path towards more healthy and sustainable lifestyles. And I think this whole COVID pandemic was one of those moments where all of a sudden people were stuck at home making their own food, thinking about, oh, God, I don't want to get this COVID thing and get really sick. So they started thinking a little bit more about health. I wonder how much this will shift the percentage of each of those green consumers moving forward from from COVID. But have you seen any transition in the numbers since COVID hit? I haven't. I don't think the numbers are yet out there, right? Track like real numbers, real studies out there yet. You're absolutely right. First of all, I want to comment on even myself when I first, when I started having, when I had my children, you know, what you put in your mouth, you put in your baby, right? So that is very true. When we start, we're like, oh, now we're going to really watch. We're going to read those ingredients on that package. And by the way, the millennials have, have been a very important group, that influential group that has helped promote more sustainable products in the marketplace. And that's why we're seeing them. 90% of them said that they would buy from a company if they believed 
in their sustainability or environmental practices. And 95% of them said that they would share that information with a friend. So that has helped you know, push the envelope a bit for more green. And then the Gen Z behind them are even more intense. <laughs> so I call them, I sometimes call them the Gen, you know, G, the Greta gen- generation, right? So that, uh, that are out there, right? Really activists, you know, but I think a lot of us were, had that gene in our 20s, more activist <laughs> oriented. Yeah, so it has had an impact there. But COVID, I don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe where millennials were somewhat mainstreaming sustainability or health, I think Gen Z might also level that up, but also bring social justice more into the mainstream as well, which is exciting to see. Another point that you made that I thought was interesting was about actually understanding the consumer that you're trying to reach and appealing to whatever already motivates them. Because I think where a lot of companies mess up is they think, we just need to convince this person to change their behaviors or or whatever. And therefore, like what motivates me? And I'll, I'll, I'll use that same messaging to try to motivate this consumer. But what seems to work better from a behavior design standpoint, because it's really hard to motivate someone and motivation comes and goes. So even if you build motivation for a moment and get them to buy your product, are they going to keep buying it or will that motivation fizzle? So I think what works best it's, and it leans on your point is that if you tap into what already motivates that person, whether it's price, taste, quality, health, you know, whatever it is, and you lean in on that as your messaging focus, then once they're, they'll, they'll be more likely to buy your product. But once they're kind of buying your product, then you can weave in the stories of sustainability or impact or, or whatever were their secondary kind of considerations. That's fantastic. You said that right on. I wanted to cite a study that was done that came out of Yale University. A group of 16 Madison Avenue agencies came together to message climate change, right? And they did a study and they did a cross 6,000 people were in it, cross section of the United States, half female, half male, Democrat, Republican, racial, ages. They just did a real slice of America. And to find out what the motivating messages would be for a climate change message. And they gave them 15 messages and then they all rated them. And there were two messages out of the 15 where they came together. And when John Marshall was the one who had the head of that up. And he said to me, Carolyn, I hate to tell you this, but it's not an environmental message. That I was like, I knew that was going to be true. Of course I knew that. But the two messages where they came together were one, powered by America, right? And let's get to work. It was an economic message, right? That climate change, which is what you know we're hearing out of Washington right now, jobs, jobs, jobs. But climate change was really an economic opportunity versus save the polar bear, right? Or saving the planet. Now, I know that could infuriate some of my environmental friends, but where I see it is like, again, everybody, whatever is going to move the needle, let's move the needle. Let's get collective and move the needle. So that was, so then know your customer, right? And message that way. And that's what I think is interesting about that too is I, I know there's some debate over the validity of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but 
where I think it kind of connects a lot is that I see that people usually lean towards the most pressing problem right now. So if they're struggling economically, they're going to be more interested in economic concerns right now than saving polar bears. <laughs> but if they're doing fine economically and they've got you know a roof over their head and they can afford good food, etc., once they've got their basic needs covered, then they can care about the polar bears. But you can't lead with the polar bears because whether or not I'm going to pay my rent because I just got laid off because of COVID is going to be much more pressing right now. So I think that's sometimes a journey you have to go on with people is, is address their primary, most pressing concerns right now, and then kind of lead them on the journey, baby step by baby step towards caring about the polar bears or whatever. Yeah, that is very true. When we had the last not this past one with the uh, COVID, but the economic downturn in the 80s. Do you remember that happened in the late 80s when there was a crash? There were brands out there like a Clorox and Windex came out with Greenworks and a, a whole green brands that went into mainstream. Sales soared, right? Pre-downturn. But here's the thing. That group, that demographic abandoned those products when the economic crash happened. They went back to the cheaper product, even though it was 10 or 20%. They went back to the cheaper product. However, for the deep greens, for the seventh generation, their end and uh, like Patagonia, so they, they were really, they're loyalists, right? And back to a value, they continued. It was a slower growth, but they grew during that time. So do you see what I'm saying? Like even though economic can become, it, it really also depends on their strong value system and what's important to them. Hey, y'all. We're going to take a quick break to let you know about a new podcast called Climify for designers, educators, and sustainability geeks. Host and design educator Eric Benson interviews acclaimed climate scientists and sustainability experts to find out how designers can help combat the climate crisis in their college classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. You can find Climify on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to join the conversation and become a climate designer, you can follow the show on Instagram at Climify Podcast or head over to our great teaching resources at climatedesigners.org/edu. All right, now let's get back to our conversation. Which shade of green there makes them more or less likely to flip or flop back or forth back and forth like if they've if again all their needs are taken care of, they will vote with their dollar, but if all their needs aren't taken care of, they'll pull back, but the super greens what you're saying is that they will keep voting with their dollar no matter what. And I think I I resonate with that because there are non-negotiables in my life where it's, you know, I've got to have more sustainable materials, whatever. I try not to buy anything that can't be recycled or was already recycled or, you know, different things like that. I just want to have a low footprint in that regard. I hate sending things to the landfill if they don't need to. And then food, like I need good food and everything else in my life can be negotiable. I'll cut back on all other expenses so that I can make sure that I can get good food and buy better products, basically. You know, obviously I'm more of the super green, but for somebody who's a little bit more f flexible and they're dipping their toe in the green water, of course that totally makes sense that they'll pull back as soon as the purse strings get tightened. Yeah, exactly. So that might be all confusing for someone who's trying to 
market their brand, right? If they really have a very deep green brand, they have to decide on what kind of company they want to be is also true. So I keep on using Patagonia just because if you go to their website, right straight up, they say, we are an activist company. Yeah, they use that word, we're an activist. And that is part of their purpose and why they're on the planet. But your company, another brand might be different. Maybe it was to, maybe it's more include, they want to like widen the net. So their marketing messages would be different, a little different. Not that they wouldn't include the green. They have a different purpose than a, a more, you called it super green. I love that. More the super green brands. Yeah, that is interesting. It's tough to figure out exactly where to lean. Often when I'm advising clients, I tell them that, you know, you've got to focus on that quality, the taste, the whatever first. And if you've nailed that, then you can bring out some of the other messages. But until you win them over in terms of like, this is a good product and I want to have it, it's hard to really just lean heavily in on the sustainability because even super green people maybe don't want to buy a bad product just because it's super green. Whereas Patagonia, you know, you at least, you know, by default, it's a good product. It's going to last. They've got like lifetime guarantees on it. And especially if you're the outdoorsy type, you probably like the style too. So because all those things are already considered and locked in, they can lead with this more activist message and still connect with people. But if you haven't really dialed in your product and you're just leading with sustainability, let's just take a a cleaning company. Like if you make dish soap and you lean on sustainability, but your product sucks and it doesn't wash my dishes very well, well, you're going to lose all of your customers, right? <laughs> totally. If it doesn't work, right? Yeah, so it is interesting, but it's tough to find the right thing to focus on when you're running a business. There's a million things pulling your attention all the time and all these different priorities. So it can get confusing and hard to understand where to really lock your positioning in. But speaking of which, <laughs> you uh, obviously run an agency called Mind Over Market. So tell us a little bit more about that and what you do there. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. So many businesses struggle to find the right words to message their sustainable or social impact products and services. Actually, even if they're not sustainable, they struggle to that. They use too much jargon. That happens a lot in sustainability. They confuse their customers. And what happens at the end of the day is that they have little or no impact in the marketplace. So at Mind Over Markets, we have two things that we help with. We have, First of all, we have a storytelling framework that is sublime. It really works. And we combine that with really our skillfulness of over the last 20 years of working and knowing what motivates that buyer. And we blend that so that they can clarify their message so they're seen, heard, and grow their businesses. So that's what we do in Mind Over Markets. We help our customers to clarify their message and create compelling messages so that they can grow their companies because it is not the best products that win at the end of the day. It's the ones that can communicate the clearest and the fastest. You have 10 seconds when somebody comes to your website to do three things. You have to answer, what do you do? How do you make my life, customer life better? And how do I buy from you? And I cannot tell you how many websites I've gone to that you go there and you're like, what do they do? <laughs> or, if you, or if you have to ask the questions, what do you mean by that? You haven't hit your message because you can't answer that when somebody comes to your website. What do you mean by that? 
And if you start digging and scrolling and trying to figure it out, you know what people do. They get distracted and they're on to the next thing. So that's why it's so what we do is we help them hone that so that they can tell their story on their homepage, right? Or their landing page and really get they're inviting their customer into their own story because it's all about their customer. It's not about you, brand. <laughs> so, you know, when I worked in Madison Avenue, the mantra was the brands were the hero, right? And, you know, we do this, we do that, and we're so great. We're going to, but the truth of the matter is your customer is the hero and you are the guide to help them win the day. And if you can flip that and tell your story through your customer lens, then you, I mean, you gain so much more traction. That's actually a story brand. It's called Story Brand, a framework. I'm a story brand guy. And I absolutely love it and worked with many brands on really clarifying their message that way. That is so, you know, customer centric because instead, instead of saying, oh, this is what I do. So, you know, when you go networking and people say, hey, what do you do? And they start talking about themselves. You're like, oh, great. You know, good luck with that. <laughs> instead of inviting them into a story about them. And then they're leaning in because they have they might have a problem. They might have an issue. So flip that and tell your story through your customers' needs and wants. Yeah, I'm familiar with the story brand methodology. I've read the book. It's a great book. So anyone listening out there, check out the book. But then obviously there are certified consultants like like you, Carolyn, who can help guide people through that process. And you go through a bunch of training, you understand the framework, you've used it so many times that it you can help guide people through. And, you know, reading the book is great, but but sometimes you struggle to like get it down on paper yourself, you know, so it's definitely helpful to have someone else help push you through that. Because if anyone's ever tried to write for themselves or design for themselves, they know how hard it is to really nail it, especially from a clarity standpoint, because you, the founder of the business, know all the 150 different ways that you think you're better for the world, better for your customers, better whatever. And you've got all these little nuanced things in your mind and you want to communicate all of them, <laughs> but you can't because that creates such a lack of, <laughs> you can't, you create such a lack of clarity, right? So it's really helpful to have a framework and to have a consultant or someone else outside of your company to listen to <laughs> everything that you do and tell you, this is the thing. Like you need to lead with that. This is the, first thing you need to talk about, then you can talk about these other things after you've got them hooked into this first thing. And I also love that the story brand framework and what the work that you do helps flip it to be more about the customer. Because like you said, who wants to go to a website or or listen to a webinar or something and all the person's talking about is how great they are and how cool they are and how awesome all their features are. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear how they're connected into this. They want to hear how their life is going to get better. And if you can kind of speak from that angle, you'll be much more effective. Right. Exactly. So what I tell my clients to do is like, what problem do you want to own? Okay. What problem do you want to own? Because your customer has a problem. What's that one significant thing you hear over and over again? that over and over again. Now you're going to say, oh, well, there's three, there's four, and there might be. But what's that one problem maybe that you've made that where you've made the most money, right? They're willing to spend money on, but that is where you should start, okay? And then 
create what they do with StoryBrand is they put a little salt on the wound. They, you know, exacerbate the problem a little bit because we don't act unless there's a sense of urgency. So, so many times when you go to a website or even when you hear a speech, they don't talk about what the problem is. They go right to solution. Even if you start, this is how we'll make your life better. And here's our solution. I don't even know what the problem is. Sometimes your customer doesn't even know they have one, right? In sustainability, sometimes they don't know how bad it really is. I worked with an organic mattress company. Who knew what was inside of that mattress that you're sleeping one third of your life on, right? And you're like right on there. It's like that. So I would say to your uh, listeners, what's that one problem, that significant problem that you hear over and over again? And start there and then build your story around that. I'm curious, what kind of mistakes are you seeing people who don't understand story brand framework or who don't understand the green consumer? Like we'll call them just generalist marketers. What kind of mistakes do you see them making when they're trying to tailor their messaging? What I already said is that they'll make the assumption that they'll lead and they'll lead with a, like a saving the planet message on some level. I have one client where that is good. Be- that is the way to go because their customers are all environmentalists and they want to hear about that. Then you talk about it all day long, but that's not the case for most brands. So what's important to them? So the mistake they make is number one, they lead with the green and really it should be a supporting message. Another one is what you mentioned is that they put too many ideas out there. We do this, we do that, we do this. You know, when you put more than two or three ideas, they remember no ideas right? They just don't, they, you know, and so then what I hear sometimes startups or even, even companies that have been around for a while, they're like, well, we're limiting our niche, right? When we have just that. But the truth of the matter is when you become known for that and you drive that message over and over, you expand your business. So make sure you have that one idea that your one idea that you're driving over and over, and you can tell the story as it blossoms out of the other things you do, but don't load it up with, you know, with the, with the laundry list of all the things that you solve, because I won't remember it. So that's another problem. Uh, another problem is that when I get to a website, I call it don't make me dig, right? I'm like, where do I get in touch with them? There's no direct call to action right? You see, learn more, or you see, read this. And you, if your homepage or your lead page has all of these learn mores, and so you coming down and I click on that, you have just taken me away somewhere else. And I haven't even told my story yet. You've distracted me and brought me over there. So don't do that till after you tell your story. So know what your direct call to action is by now schedule a call, donate, whatever that is that you want them to do after they get to your site. Keep that prominent so people know what to do and and not like dig around to find out how to engage. So those are like three common things that happen. And you probably know that as a designer as well, you know, uh, designing websites. Some of the messes people make when they do that. Yeah, from a user experience standpoint, I think most company owners or marketers or whatever want to put a zillion links everywhere and everyone, every department wants to have their story on the homepage or whatever. And it's just a big mess with all these links going everywhere and all these conflicting messages, like you said, that don't really tell the story. And of course, after the first 
you know, enticing link on the page, probably the rest of the page is barely going to get noticed because you're going to lead people away from it. So to exactly to your point, if you have an important story you want to tell or a message that you need to get across before people leave the page, <laughs> obviously place your links wisely. But you also made a good point that so many websites don't have a clear, well, what do I do now? Like, what's my next step? And if you've just got links pointing to every page of your website with no call us now, with no sign up now, with no whatever it is that your call to action is, I think that can be troublesome as well. Yeah. And contact us is not what I'm talking about. Yes, you can have your contact us button, but I'm talking about a very prominent jump off the page button that tells me how to get a direct call to action to you. So that's, that's a really important thing. One more I think I'll put in there, because this is a lost opportunity I see, is that people come to websites and, you know, only one to three, maybe 5% are going to engage with you right away, buy from you right away, because they're really needing it. And so then there's, that, there's another 95% that aren't. And if you haven't gotten their email address, if you haven't found a way to, to keep the conversation going after they come, then you've lost an opportunity. So creating what we call a lead generator, some high value, whether it's a PDF, whether it's a video, a podcast that you might be doing, a way to collect an email address, because that's what you own. Social media, you don't own, right? Because if Zuckerberg decides to turn, you know, to change an algorithm, you could be out. But if you got their email address, you own that. And now you can take them on a journey and not like a sales journey of more emails to warm them up and get them connected to you so that when they are ready to buy, you are top of mind. So don't forget to do that, to, to have something there that where you can, you can give them something really juicy in exchange for their email. And it's got to be juicy because people are not giving their emails a newsletter is not too juicy these days because it's like, who needs another newsletter, right? Unless your newsletter is superb, like Motley Fools has their newsletter. But most of the time, we don't do that. Create something that they really want to hear, right? And they're like, yeah, I'm going to give them my email address. And then write some great emails and copy and then social media to get them to be your ultimately your customer, maybe 18 months down the road. Right. But if they leave and you haven't gotten it, you're out. Yeah, that makes sense. Because we've talked a lot about focus, like if you don't pick the one thing that's the most important to communicate up front that you're going to lose them. I'm sure most people listening are going to be like, but what about my other 90 things? <laughs> so what advice do you give people after you've narrowed in on the one thing that they need to lead with? What advice do you give them on still talking about all the other five, ten? hundred things that make them special. Yeah. So first of all, you're not going to want a hundred, right? But in the framework, in this framework we talk about, there's actually a section called value proposition where you have three big benefits that you can talk about. There's also your product line could be right there, you know, featured products. So you can, you're telling the story. So we're, so what we're saying is that when you're going to lead with a problem, one problem, and then you can, through t you're telling your story, tell them of the other things you do too. Yes, you can do that. It's just that you're not going to lead with like, here's all the great things we do and forget it. And by the way, it's not you, right? You're creating a messaging that's about them. 
So there is opportunities to be able to speak about it. It's just not out of the gate. So what is your gateway in that will get someone talking? You want them to connect with you or buy from you. What's the the thing, the lowest hanging fruit? Like what's that thing that can get them in the game? And then you now you've got them or you're their customer. Now you can market the rest of that, okay? That's a journey, but you think, but you're not going to have 50 things up front or else you're going to, it's going to be like deer in the headlights. They're going to be like Don Miller, the founder of StoryBrand calls it, don't make me burn too many calories in my brain. I can't, we have so many marketing messages coming at us. Don't make me think that hard, right? So when you get to a homepage, people don't read. I'm a copywriter, right? People don't read the copy. They scan it. So you got to be able to distill it down, right? Now, after you distill it down, you can then they can go in deeper, right? Into the weeds, into your internal pages, right? And a lot of people, some people might never do that. Some people are all about that, you know, but don't do it on the homepage because you can lose them there. Did that make sense? Yeah, totally. And that reminded me of another framework, Simon Sinek's like start with why, right? That's also a similar kind of thing where you, you don't bore them in the weeds of the what, like all your technical specs or exactly how your process is going to work or whatever, until they're sold on the why. They need to know why I should work with you and then maybe dive a little bit more into the how, like how is it that you're going to help me? Like what? how is this better than other solutions? And then only once I'm kind of convinced that I'm like, okay, I'm interested in learning more. Now you can tell me all the what. Now you can dive into the nitty gritty details. And then another note I was going to add is I often kind of reference like a retail environment. Like if you're walking down a main street with all these cute shops and you only have a moment to capture someone's attention to get them in the store, like whatever you've put on your sign or in your window graphics, that's got to be your primary message to come in. Like I've got to feel like, okay, this store is the type of store for me. I don't know what all is in there yet. You haven't listed every single thing. I don't know all the prices. I don't know whatever, but I know that you make I don't know, sustainable clothing for the modern man or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, okay, that's interesting. (laughs) That sounds like me. I would like to go in there and see what they have. Once I'm in there, you can have little signs next to your clothing racks. Your staff can have interesting little lines that they use when they're engaging with you. Your little business cards or takeaway materials can have more information about your sustainability. You can have signs up on the walls. You can have all sorts of stuff. You can get people to sign up for an email list and get sustainability tips or fashion tips or whatever it is. There's so many other touch points to your brand that you can lead people through, but you got to start with that first message that gets them in the door. So that's why I often use a retail experience because I feel like everyone's had that experience. You know, <laughs> That's a great way of saying that. The whole purpose of that homepage or that sign is to pique my curiosity. Now it's when your customer gets piqued and then they engage, now it's up to you to take it, you know, take it the whole nine yards. But that first piece, just like a subject line on, a, on an email, is to pique my curiosity enough to open it up. Okay. So that, that's that sign, make it, just make it really good to make me go, oh, I want to know more. So out of curiosity, do you have any interesting, juicy projects or anything you're working on right now that could be a bit of a case study for listeners and how you've helped brands? There's two, actually. When we're talking about this right now, I'll give one example of actually it's a nonprofit. Now, nonprofits, 
notoriously are all about like, we're so good. We're look what we're doing for the planet. And you should give me money. You should donate right here because we're helping all of these people. And that's normally how their communications are. So to flip that really, and really engage, get more donations and engage your customer, tell the story through their lens, through that. So let me give you an example. One of my clients E-A-L Green. Check them out. E-A-L-Green.org. What they do is they work with large corporations that have excess inventory, like just say Amazon, right? Somebody returns a washing machine or sunglasses and has a little bit, It's maybe it's a little off or it's not saleable anymore that they can't put it back into inventory. So it's excess inventory, surplus. And it can end up in a landfill or it ends up in a liquidator, which actually reduces your brand's equity, right? Not great. So they say, hey, give me that excess inventory. And then what they do is they go to colleges and they said, hey, let's say a washing machine. Hey, we got this $1,000 washing machine and we're going to give it to you for 200 bucks, right? They got it for free, but they're selling it for 200 bucks and that... 800 extra dollars that this cost give us it in in, intuition okay so now i got a two they get a 200 uh, washing machine and then 800 dollars in tuition and then they take that tuition and collectively you know a lot of different colleges that do it and it becomes tuition for students in need so they turn excess inventory to financial aid for students with financial needs okay fantastic model but now what they needed to mess it, they wanted to get more donations from corporations. So instead of saying, look at the great thing we're doing, we're putting all these kids through college and you should, they really need the money. The message was when I asked them, well, what does that, what does that corporation want more, most? What do you keep them hearing them say? And it's building the next workforce, right? So building the next workforce was their lead message. Right? How do you turn the next workforce, right? You can turn the next workforce into build them and then put them through college so that they can be in the work, in the workplace and, you know, and help you and help the economy. So that was the message versus like, oh, donate your products to us. So even if you're a nonprofit, right? Oh, so what happened was they, they put that message out. And within like a week's time, they said they got a call. I'm not going to say the name from a huge (laughs) company who was the head of global returns, really loved what they were hearing. And then they've been trying to get to them for years. And then they made a a connection because they started talking about their customer and not about how wonderful I am, right? The uh, nonprofit. That's one thing that I just wanted to say. But another that has nothing to do necessarily with this framework we're talking about One of my clients is a utility and I'm working on literally decarbonizing, helping to decarbonize New Mexico, which is like, you know, let's face it, right? We're all, the climate change is here, right? And it's rapidly accelerating. We need to get to net zero carbon emissions as soon as possible. But for utility, we still have to have reliable power because if your lights go out, people will be calling you. So how can we do that? This company that I'm working with, we're going into a stakeholder 
I love this. They're collaborating with other environmentalists, other stakeholders to come collectively come up with a decarbonization plan because we need everyone now. So that was a, that's a big shift that when it's not just about we're going to make this plan and you're going to have to listen to it, but it's actually getting input from key stakeholders that can help on collectively create a plan to decarbonize New Mexico. So I'm in the process of doing those stakeholder interviews and making those. We just wrote a mission statement and guiding principles for this project. And we're now going out into a stakeholder process. That's exciting to me to be able to, because the impact of that, of, of really bringing, well, New Mexico, and let's face it, the entire planet, but really bringing by 2040, they want to be at zero emissions right? And being really on the inside game on that for a certain state. I used to live in New Mexico, so it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So that's one of the things we're working on. But it's still back to how do we wrap this around? You know, when you create a mission statement, you know, usually they end up on a shelf, you know, somewhere gathering dust. And you ask anybody like, what is your mission statement? And they're like, I don't know. It's this long paragraph. Let me pull it up. So your mission statement should be so tight, right, that people get it like, and, and everybody should know it. And it should be compelling, just like your message should be compelling. And I use Tesla. I love Tesla. Has a, I spoke to the, she's the global head of sustainability at Tesla. And she said, everybody from the sea level right down to people that, you know, work the equipment know this, is that our mission statement is accelerating the world to sustainable energy. And if you don't know that, she said, you don't work at this company. It's memorized. So it's really, that's how you engage really. So they're, they're in a story with you. It's not just like a top down thing. It's they're, they're engaged in a story. So that feels really, that's why it's so exciting to be part of this uh, decarbonization because we're doing that too. We're inviting everyone into a story that they're a part of, okay? That's what's beautiful about those co-design processes. Like you said, it's not a few people got in a room and decided what everyone else should do, and now we're going to force you to do it by putting in a law or you know whatever it is. But you literally engage everyone. They get to be part of the process. Therefore, you're going to have buy-in from them, most likely, because they were part of the process. Their voice was heard, and maybe some of their ideas made it into the final suggestion. So it's such a great tool, not only for making something that's more systems approach, like you've heard from everyone, so you've gotten all the different angles, but by the time you put together your final recommendations or the final plan, you've got already got so much buy-in from all the key stakeholders, players in that space to help it be more possible that your goals will be met rather than meeting with resistance. That's cool. Absolutely. That's one of those mistakes people make, right? They'll, they'll maybe a group will put together a mission, but not every, everybody has buy-in. And that's why you create those guiding principles, those clear actions, the key characteristics, all of those reasons why to, to live into the mission statement and back to Simon and, and get to your big why around that. And I love that note about mission statements too. Another example is Patagonia recently changed theirs from you know a few paragraphs like most people comp- most companies have, and that's why nobody can mem- remember it because it's multiple paragraphs with a bunch of jargon. But they simplified theirs to something to the effect of "We're on a mission to save our home planet," 
that's it. You know, <laughs> like that's, that's all you need to know. And therefore like, of course all the employees can now memorize it. <laughs> Even people who don't work there like me now can know your mission statement, which when would that ever happen? Like what consumers ever know a company's mission statement? So I love the idea of just, it's totally simplifying it, distilling it down. That makes sense. You can always have tons of paragraphs explaining it if needed later. But like, if you hook me with that one line, then I'm sold. <laughs> yeah. There's that one line back to that one line, right? <laughs> that was beautiful. I know I've already taken up tons of your time and we've shared tons of tips and strategies. And before we close out, is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with on how to tell better sustainability stories? Yeah, I think that I just, I'm going to, you know, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. So when I say this, when you get sick of it, your message, you're doing a great job. Okay. <laughs> so get the one message repeated over and over again. And I'm going to repeat mine to give you an example. It's not the best products and services that sell the best. It's the ones that communicate the clearest and the fastest. Okay. So repeat your driving message over and over in a million different ways so that you become known for that. And then you will watch your sales go up. I promise you. It's, this, is, this is not rocket science. So that's what I want to leave. Beautiful. That's a wonderful nugget of wisdom to pass on. And I appreciate all your time and all that you do and, and for you to come in on the show and sharing some of your experience, wisdom, research, you know, methods. That's super awesome. I, I imagine our community will get a lot of benefit from it. So thanks for coming on and thanks for being you and doing what you do. All right. Right back at you. Thank you so much. And you do such great work as well. So all together, we'll make a difference on the planet. Thank you for inviting me here. Go team. <laughs> thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Paul or his company, go to letsriff.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com.